Well, folks, if you like movies, you're probably in for a bad time because although this summer at the cinema, some movies are doing great, others are flopping on their faces. And meanwhile, some streaming services are falling even harder. And thanks to these new Hollywood writer and actor strikes, plus economic instability, plus this looming threat of artificial intelligence generated art, we could see a burst of the streaming bubble and maybe all of Hollywood as we know it. How should Christians praise and criticize these changes and what changes do we need to make as we pursue the kinds of stories that will help us grow best? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth. We are not on strike. We're the podcast from lorehaven.com where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm me, Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parents. In a world where people go to movies, many people have not been going to movies, including me, Zachary Russell. And this is episode 173. Why are so many summer blockbusters getting busted? Zach, I saw a summer blockbuster that uh, got a little nerfed because of the whole Barbie and Oppenheimer phenomenon. I'm referring to Mission Impossible 7. Now, my wife and I went out on a date last night and we got to see that. I think it may be one of the few screens in town that is showing this. Uh, one must feel a little bit of sympathy for director Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise and the rest of the cast and crew, because this movie had been in development for a very long time, so long that they were still shooting under COVID lockdowns. That's the movie where Tom Cruise was yelling at people because he wanted them to get in shape and stay two feet apart and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, the movie itself uh, was really good. I really appreciated it as an earnest and yet also fun summer blockbuster yes he really does ride that motorbike off the cliff and do a whole lot of other stunts okay. but it's the character work and the uh, and the the moral uh, quandaries that he finds himself in uh, that i think really help it is this the one where he goes to outer space no he doesn't go to outer space there okay that, that, that was the that was a fast and furious guys going to outer space oh, okay. I, I don't think he's actually ever been to outer space i thought Deep he was doing a but, film uh, in the international space station or something that must be something else i'm okay. sure that's something so it's not else. mission impossible yeah i think they actually had to scrub that mission because that would be the strikes. tallest thing he could jump from i guess that's true yeah, yeah. well it'd have to be like the original uh, plan for i think uh, show captain kirk uh skydiving from an orbital platform or something <laughs> like that yeah, otherwise, we haven't seen a whole lot of movies, uh, Zach and I. Um, Lacey and I managed to grab uh, Mission Impossible last night. We really wanted to see it opening week, but that was uh, Realm Makers week, so Realm Makers has to take precedent. Uh, I've not seen Barbie. I've not seen Oppenheimer. Really don't care to see either. I'm kind of morbidly curious about Barbie. I want to know if it's going to deathly offend me, but Oppenheimer offends me worse because they got naked people on there. And once again, shame on you, Christopher Nolan. You've gone to the dark side. Didn't have to do that. We were showing up for the atomic bomb and A-listers anyway, not uh, not naked folks. Zach, have you seen any movies lately in theaters? I mean, I don't think I've seen any movies this calendar year. Um, None I, at all. Wow. I, yeah. I, not that come to mind. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but I do want to see Mission Impossible. And, you know, I've debated about seeing Sound of Freedom. I, I want to see it. I just don't know if I want to see it in theaters just because it's a very sensitive subject matter. and. I may want to have a remote to fast forward through some things, but Mission Impossible, I do want to see because that's the kind of movie you've got to see on a big screen, right? And and I think that's, we'll talk about that today, but that's kind of been my criteria for for things like, do I absolutely have to see this on a big screen? 
Well, you're probably now only going to be able to see it on a smaller screen, even in theaters, uh, because the Barbie and Oppenheimer phenom kind of took over the big screens. Uh, Lacey and I were only able to find one Showtime near us that fit with our needs yesterday. Uh, it's only in like one little screen at, at the smaller theater in town. So definitely see it as early as you can, uh, at least before some big phenomenon comes along. Uh, real quick, before we proceed, our first sponsor is once again Enclave Publishing with their next big phenomenon. Enclave Escape presents Sky of Seven Colors. This is the new novel by Rochelle Nelson, who is actually on the show in episode 171, recorded live at Realm Makers. In a strange part of the forest, the divide between worlds grows thin. After the accident, Meg would do anything to wake her best friend from his deadly coma. At least that's what she whispered into the woodland shadows. She never imagined her wish would trap her in a gray other earth, void of any color. With her heart torn between earths, Meg's choices may cost more than she knows. Available August the 8th, wherever fantastic books are sold. Pre-order now online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller or your local library. Also available in audio from Oasis Audio. You can get the links in our show notes for episode 173. Or for more info for this and all our other sponsors, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Our second sponsor later uh, will be the I Write course, How to Write a Novel from EJ Kitchens. And then I take the third sponsor slot for the pop culture parent. Zach, uh, we've got a lot of quotes and notes along with the sponsor info uh, that we've put in the show notes. There's a lot of stories from uh, Variety and some of our own previous podcast episodes that we'll be referencing as we go. We do have one concession stand item, though, just a really quick snack before we proceed into the theater. Uh, it's simply this, that uh, Lorehaven focuses on Christian-made fantastical stories, uh, most often books, novels specifically, and we do the pop culture stuff as a side quest. So just in case you found uh, this episode and then are going back in the archives uh, expecting a bunch of general Christian geek stuff, we know of a lot of other podcasts and websites that do that sort of thing. Uh, Lorehaven's a little bit different. Any other uh, disclaimers, Zach? Um, yeah, we're not really talking about Christian cinema either. <laughs> Sorry no. if, if you've turned in, tuned in for that. I mean, occasionally we will talk about a Christian movie, but we're not the Kevin McCurry Say Goodnight Kevin podcast where he reviews a lot of and roasts a lot of Christian movies. Ah, I miss when he did that. I guess he got busy. Uh, probably our, our, <laughs> our, our podcast episode with him uh, was a grand finale. But yeah, I, I guess another thought I would have here uh, is that I don't want to roast stuff. And we might talk about movies that have flopped that you really enjoyed. Uh, and maybe even some movies that are objectively good movies uh, that just had a round of bad luck or came out at a bad time. Like Mission Impossible 7, for example, arguably uh, came out at a bad time because then Oppenheimer took over all the IMAX screens that Tom Cruise wanted. And apparently he wasn't too happy about that. Uh, it does deserve the big screen. But then again, you know, maybe if you ignore the nakeds, uh, Oppenheimer also deserves a big screen. So. Sometimes it's not a movie's fault. Uh, sometimes it could be bad marketing or bad timing. I think a lot of that happened, for example, to the Zack Snyder DC movie. It's just people were expecting uh, that which the movie was not providing. But on its own terms, the movie itself did really well. I don't want to expect differently of movies than the director, or the actors, or the writers were intending to give us. From there, let's explore chapter one. Why have some new films become flop busters? I think I saw that term uh, scattered about the interwebs, and I think it uh, makes a lot of sense. I think it refers to a movie that the uh, production company, the big corporation that made it, like Disney or Universal or Warner Bros., they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the movie itself, and then another 150 mil or so on the marketing. So you've got maybe a movie that cost altogether $400 million to make. 
and then it arrives at the theater and then it just burps out 230 million in profit. Uh, that's a flop. You spent more for the movie than you got back. Uh, it is not a, a financial ruin for the studio necessarily, but a financial setback. Uh, you are now in the red for that movie. And if you release enough of those things, then you are even more deeply in the red. Our exhibit A, of course, speaking of uh, in the red, would be The Flash. Poor The Flash. I really don't want to kick the guy when he's down. And this has nothing to do with the actor. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about the Ezra Miller who played The Flash. But I will say that he does a great job in Zack Snyder's Justice League. And in fact, his scene at the end, uh, a big heroic moment at the end of that movie, uh, got some Oscar recognition uh, for the short-lived uh, fan award uh, for the Academy Awards in 2022. So there was a lot of potential there. Uh, this movie had been in development for a very long time. And then I think a phenomenon I'll describe later uh, ends up just crushing it. I myself didn't see it. I guess that's another disclaimer. A lot of these flops I just haven't seen. Uh, if I did see it, I'd be probably trying to find ways to defend it if I liked it. But I've not liked the clips that I've seen. The best clips that I've seen, Zach, is actually someone took a scene with uh, Batman, uh, played by Ben Affleck, and Snyderized it. Uh, they did the redid the color grading. They redid the soundtrack. Uh, they cut out some of the goofier moments, uh, and then they uh, put in uh, the the four to three uh, resolution. Like you know, makes it more of the square format with the black bars on the sides instead of the top. So it makes you feel a little bit more like it's in continuity with Justice League. But I haven't seen the movie. I do not care to see the movie. A lot of those scenes I saw were just absolutely cringe and just bad CGI. Really, really bad CGI. And that's not the artist's fault. It's the fault of the planning. They didn't get it together early enough uh, to lock down the effects and plan for the effects while they were shooting it. So everything has to be done. Throwing down the little railroad track in front of the model train while you're riding on it. Just really, really cringe. So... Uh, let the studio uh, get what they deserve from that, but we're not just gonna. I'm not just gonna roast Warner Brothers again, all over again. <laughs> uh, Disney also ain't doing so well, folks. Uh, we talked about this uh, back in our episode uh, about uh, the fandoms not going well at the beginning of this year. We'll have that in the show notes. But uh, apart from all the Star Wars and Marvel mess, uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny has just met with audience indifference. Zach, I know you're a huge fan. I know you're lining oh, up man. in your fedora and your uh, bullwhip. You know, as, as a kid, I mean, you laugh, but as a kid, I had those things. Like I had a little bull whip. I mean, a kid sized one. Okay. I had it on my belt. I don't remember if I had the hat. I probably had a hat. Uh, man, I, I loved, you know, play acting that film as a kid and I loved all three movies. I've, I've watched them billions of times. And then, um, then the weird one with the aliens and Shia LaBeouf came out and what? you should like that, right? Because you're the aliens guy, <sighs> but you did know. not I because wanted, perhaps it didn't seem to belong. I don't know what it was about that. There, there was, it didn't know what kind of film it was and it, it wasn't an Indiana Jones movie. There was just something really wrong about it, even though I wanted to, you know, I was predisposed to like it, but it was like, these two things don't belong together. It's like, I don't know, putting, you know, like a mustard uh, ice cream cone or, or something like that. Or what, what did I see this? Oh, it was mustard Skittles. That's what I saw. <laughs> like, who would want that? That makes a lot of sense. And that fits my experience when I watched it. Although I'm not as familiar with the Indiana Jones franchise, I understand that you put aliens in there. Now the audience intuitively expects a different kind of story, yeah. a science fiction story. We don't associate spaceships and aliens with history with right. archaeology we associate them with the future or maybe a paranormal present 
So it is a genre mashup that just does not mash well together. Yeah. And this latest one. You didn't want to see it then, even no, as just, an OG indie fan. Okay. Yeah, it, It's like I, I could not see enough good reviews. I mean, look, I, I've got friends that say, I don't really care so much. I, I'm just happy for more Star Wars or more Indiana Jones or just more things that in the you know, in the same vein of what I grew up with, I'll, I'll watch anything Transformers. I, I think it's fun. Look, I, I don't want to throw shade at those people, but I, um, I have really not enjoyed how these films are, are being subverted. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little, little bit. But, you know, once you peek behind the curtain and you see what these producers are doing with these films, I, I just can't participate. Well, from uh, the whole idea of Picard season one to Han Solo to Indiana Jones, oddly enough, both played by Harrison Ford, <laughs> and then also Luke Skywalker, you've got this trope of the aged heroic mentor figure uh, subverted who has to go on a character journey, who's miserable, who's sitting around at home, who's not doing anything until perhaps the younger yeah. person arrives. And I understand maybe they're trying to do a version of the call to adventure. But I think that ruins a lot of fans' perceptions of the happy ending. Uh, we were supposed to have a happy ending for that guy. You're supposed to reach a point, at least so goes the myth, that you become grown, that you become mature, and there's no further adventures for you. You need to simply be uh, the good mentor figure who, figure who trains all the other adventurers. Well, that kind of doesn't work, I suppose, if you have an actor then who still wants to portray the adventurer but then you also have to address the age issue head on. Maybe that worked okay, at least in theory, for Indiana Jones. I, I saw a lot of people who actually did appreciate it because apparently he doesn't sit around at home not doing anything for a long time. He is apparently eager to get back in the saddle eventually, based on what I've heard. Uh, and then you know Picard eventually gets there uh, in the, in his own uh, Star Trek series. And I guess you could say that for Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. But it still strikes fans, uh, leaves them with a, a, a very sour yeah. taste in their mouths. Well, in what people thought uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was going to be about was him, you know, passing the bullwhip to Shia LaBeouf to uh, become the new Indiana Jones, essentially. And that, and that didn't really happen. And so it's like, well, okay, what was the point of this movie then? But um, no, no consequences then. That's one yeah. problem. But the you know what you said about the aged hero who's, who's kind of bitter and, you know, yelling at the clouds. We talked about mission impossible earlier. And I remember when the original 1995, 96, 96. Uh, yes. Yeah. Tim, Tom Cruise, uh, mission impossible came out. A lot of people were really upset that spoilers, uh, Jim Phelps betrays all of them. Yeah. It's kind of an early version of that trope. Actually, yeah. I, out of curiosity, I watched that movie for the first time. Uh, a few weeks ago. So it actually helped me because I was able to appreciate some of the returning cast uh, in the newest mm -hmm. one. And yeah, back then, uh, fans of the original Mission Impossible TV show were very upset because they had taken this hero, not played by the same actor, and they'd shown him to have been the secret villain. Ooh, subverted. Right. And I kind of felt annoyed on behalf of those original TV show fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I remember just ignoring that at the time because I didn't grow up watching mission impossible so that's I'm like, what they oh, were counting what, on what yeah. does it matter it's a fun you know thing and now i'm like oh i should have listened <laughs> yeah well now we're hearing that or people are at least the corporations are seeming to turn against their own core fan base and like no we want to go after the general audience tm yeah the general audience then becomes an idol and the people who already like you uh, become a hindrance 
that is just sort of a corporate indifference to your own story and your own fan base mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people are picking up on, uh, along with some of the woke tropes or the aged hero is miserable tropes, uh, or just this lukewarm uh, getting worn out uh, by all the franchises. The Disney Marvel indifference uh, is definitely a thing now. I wouldn't call it a superhero fatigue. It's just corporate superhero fatigue or ineptly portrayed superhero fatigue. And there's a reason why earlier this year, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum mania did not do very well. Uh, it just felt like a slipshod, uh, badly affected mess. I've seen clips from it and I swear it does look like uh, the Robert Rodriguez uh, spy kids movies from the early two thousands where they're like splicing somebody's head uh, into a CGI encasement. Uh, oh, it's unsettling. Weird. It's weird. You cannot then get a hold of a human being as the entry point to that world. I actually remember back when they were doing the first Hellboy movie, uh, Guillermo uh, del Toro was doing that with Ron, uh, Ron Perlin as Hellboy. They added a new character to this really weird paranormal world. Just the basic guy to be the audience avatar going into this world and discovering uh, this paranormal investigations that employs a, you know, a fish man and a pyromaniac woman, and then an actual, uh, repentant demon type creature, uh, because you needed someone normal to be introduced to the weirdness in the sequel. They got rid of him. And that may be why the sequel didn't do as well, uh, for other reasons too. But once you lose the normal character when everyone's super powered and not acting normal, you lose a human investment in the story. You can't cheer a hero who is like you, even by having, you know, 10 fingers and a nose. Uh, Tom Cruise, uh, all nose jokes aside, uh, he is like that, even though he's the super spy in the Mission Impossible movies. Because even though you know he's not going to die, spoiler alert, he doesn't. Uh, maybe he dies at the end. I don't know of the, of the sequel. This is part one of part two for the newest one. But he acts vulnerable. Uh, you see the fear in his eyes. Uh, you see the determination. Uh, they go probably above and beyond to show how much he cares for his allies. And they make it, they give it an emotional heart. He wants to save the world, not just because the script tells him to, but because he believes in this. And as a result, you've, get a, you've got a moral challenge to him. Uh, he's not just riding a motorcycle off a cliff. Uh, he wants to save the person who's in the train at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of all this other backstory stuff that's set up very well, and it makes sense. And that also, by the way, gives all the action some breathing room. Otherwise, it's actually a pretty exhaustive, uh, exhausting movie, actually. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But I think a lot of people are feeling exhausted by movies uh, in a bad way. There's creative fatigue among the studios. Uh, the writers obviously felt that they're not being paid enough for this job. I don't get paid enough for this job. You know, uh, the actors now, apparently a lot of them feeling uh, the same way. And the industry is just financially stressed. Uh, lockdowns were bad, but I think it was already stressed because of all the streaming stuff. And this was true before the Writers Guild of America went on strike starting May the 2nd. Uh, and then SAG-AFTRA uh, went on strike uh, July 14th. That's just um, enhanced this uh, stress in the industry. So I think it's fun for Christians to study where these stories come from. Uh, they don't just arrive on TV fully formed. Uh, any more than the steak arrives on your supermarket. You know, it was a long, bloody process <laughs> to make that story. And now I think, Zach, we were talking about some of this before we started recording. There's just so much. There are too many streaming services. There are too many TV shows clamoring to be called prestige. Even among superhero stories, there's just too many. And so people lose track. 
Uh, and uh, now it's at the point where the latest Marvel TV show has the lowest ranked episode of all the Marvel uh, TV shows ever. Even with an A-lister in there, uh, Samuel L. Jackson apparently recurring the sad old hero trope, by the way, or at least that's how it came across to people. And then you just got a lot of problems with the, uh, with the critic system. Like if everything is very highly ranked and not to be missed, or if everything's just kind of mid either way, like to you, Zach, does it just kind of fade into the background? Like I, I can't keep up with all this. I'm a busy man. I got kids, I got a job and I don't have as much money as I used to because inflation. At the beginning of the episode, you talked about this episode being a side quest. And I think that's part of the problem with a lot of the Marvel stuff is every movie feels like a side quest. There doesn't seem to be an overarching narrative or there was uh, until Avengers Endgame. And then after that, they just started doing spinoffs and spinoffs of spinoffs. And like, I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting until we get a TV show of Captain Marvel's cat, which I know um, author Heidi Burke would probably love. But other than that, not many people would really want to see. And, you know, are we going to get a TV show about how Nick Fury got his eye patch? Well, there, there was a moment about that in the Captain Marvel movie or something. But whichever hey, race from my memory, by the why, way, why don't we make a whole show about the eye patch? You know, like that. It, it just feels like that's what the producers are doing. Like, let's milk this cow for all it's worth and and find every stupid angle on this story rather than let's be bold and create a new narrative or meta narrative that is driving everything forward. That's what is really annoyed me with star Wars is that we had the Skywalker narrative and then they're like, Oh, let's just do all these spinoffs now about how Han Solo came about or Obi-Wan or blah, blah, blah. And you know, and what I liked about rogue one was that that was totally different characters and you kind of know how it's going to end. It's got that problem that all prequels have, which is you know where it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to end, uh, or you don't you know how it's going to end. You don't you don't know how they're going to get there, but there were still original characters and original story. Um, I think so many of these blockbusters, though they they spend so much on CGI, so very little on writing. So it seems they're. The writing just seems very immature, and it's like, did, did anyone say no at, at any point of like, no, this is not a good idea? Um, it, it feels just very uh, industrialized. I think that's the main problem there, is uh, a perceived or actual lack of creative integrity. And, and by that, I generally mean that I believe a good movie ought to have limited two writers. Some of the best movies ever have one credited writer. Now, maybe the director gave it a polish or the actors ad-libbed. Maybe there was another uncredited writer in there somewhere, uh, hopefully who got paid uh, per the terms of the contract and all of that. But while a lot of pundits are blaming too much CGI, I actually think that's kind of rude. Uh, not only does it uh, throw overboard the uh, hard work of all these uh, over uh, overworked, underpaid graphic artists, but... As I mentioned earlier about The Flash, it's not the animator's fault if the director or the production did not allow for the CGI. Might, might get a little overly into the weeds here, but generally, if you know what the movie's going to look like and which scenes you're going to keep and which scenes you're probably not going to keep, but you're trying out, you plan while you're filming for exactly what it's going to look like. You set up the lighting a certain way, you put the certain dots in a certain place. 
Uh, you go in with a little tool uh, that captures all the reflective surfaces. I, I may be borrowing from some old behind the scenes video about how they do a CGI with live action movies. But if you change everything or if a test audience comes along and says, no, we don't like this, uh, you know, and then you decide, oh, darn, we have to reshoot the entire movie. Well, now you're over budget. Everybody's getting stressed. They're getting sloppy. And if the whole project started with bad writing, then no wonder you have to reshoot everything all the time. Uh, it's too much content. There is now too little demand for too much content. Uh, there is now an issue of supply over demand, and that's when the supply starts getting cheaper. Basic economic stuff there. I think if people say, well, there's too much CGI, I'd be like, no, no, no. There was too much writing. By that, I don't mean too much writing by one or two guys putting it together with creative integrity. I mean, for example, the recent Haunted Mansion movie from Disney. Did you know there was one? And it's not even October. It's not even September. It's not even August yet. Why do Haunted Mansion now? Apparently, the script for that movie had 12 writers. You're watching a movie and you see, you know, written by, and, and then your eyes kind of glaze over because it's more than a dozen folks with a writing credit, with probably even more without a writing credit. I'm sorry, that violates the old adage that says too many cooks spoil the broth. I think a lot of people just feeling this broth is getting spoiled by way too much reliance on polls and probably increasingly, Zach, uh, AI maybe telling people uh, on the writing side what audiences will and won't like based on an, a computer analysis of previous successful stories. Are the streaming services now uh, making creative decisions based on which moments are the most paused or the most rewatched? I kind of guess that they are. And I don't think that's going to do very well in the long run. I think some kind of algorithm based creativity is already happening yeah. even before they've gotten AI actually involved in the development of the scripts. Well, Stephen, what you're describing in all of this is risk aversion. Yes. That's the main problem, in my opinion, of big studio productions. You know, that's why they have so many writers. That's why they have so many rounds of test audiences. Um, they're trying to prevent a flop. And it's like they're trying to play it safe so bad that they can never win uh, because they're not taking a risk. Like audience audiences reward risks and you know so much of what actually is a risk is practical effects it's so easy to just redo things in cgi if you just have everything filmed in front of a green screen but when you build a set like christopher nolan did famously for inception where he's like i want to build a set of a hotel hallway that spins around <laughs> i mean that's insane who does that so many movies though that that take that creative ambitious adventurous approach that takes moral vision it takes creative vision it takes courage and and that is actually what gets people excited to to make a movie when everything is so stale and you're just standing around in front of these green screen studios or even the the new volume studios where it's like a giant inverted uh, led screen all around you i mean those are those are cool actually but it, it's the same problem um Look, I've, I've got friends that work with NASA, but, you know, I, I've heard a lot of criticism of NASA as well. I, I follow a lot of space news and longtime NASA observers have said, you know, ever since the, the Challenger and then the Columbia disasters, um, NASA became over concerned with safety. Now you can go back and look at why the Challenger exploded and there were definitely some um, safety lapses and, and there was some 
real problems that they had to solve. But, um, you know, this is kind of the nature of bureaucracies, right? Is that the bigger they grow and the more concern they get with, uh, with, with safety, that the slower everything goes. And you see this now with the, in the opposite with not in horrible ways, but, but in, uh, (laughs) exciting ways with SpaceX is they're blowing up rockets all the time. Like, and, uh, uh, it's not only Elon Musk, but his, uh, his uh, CEO, Gwen, uh, I'll, I'll think of the name later. Um, she's given a Ted talk about this, about how hey, failure can be exciting. You know, you learn so much from failure and the creative industry now is, is so afraid of failure. They're, they're so deathly afraid of it that they're failing all the time. And, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier, but it, it's the message is, is the other problem. You know, it's like, not only are they, they so risk averse, but they are so addicted to, uh, politicizing everything. And, um, you, you mentioned what was really good about mission possible was like the moral quandary. Well, what's been going on with too many movies is they are moralizing at us. They're, they're just cheap vehicles. Well, not so cheap (laughs) for, uh, you know, some kind of sermon that they want to teach us. and. I'm no longer enjoying a story with heroes and villains. I am being preached at. And isn't that funny how it's the secular stories now that have become so preachy and not the Christian ones. <laughs> it's hilarious. And you mentioned that failure can be exciting. Well, in that case, uh, these studio bosses are living in exciting times because yes, they have now created the very conditions that lead to the thing they want to avoid rather than taking risks, as by the way, I, I follow a few Hollywood types on Twitter, and it's interesting to see them, uh, who've been behind a lot of successes and failures, uh, now maybe a little outside the system, kind of speaking back into it and saying, yeah, back then we did this movie, we let the director do this, we let them take chances, it worked really well. Uh, gee, I wish that people would be more like that now. You know, There may be some of the whole golden days uh, effect there that they're looking back on, but I think it's worth it to look at some of these people who actually did well in that and then maybe go back to the old ways rather than constantly embracing novelty. And, and the constant embrace of novelty, by the way, while also paradoxically being stuck in the past uh, and trying to recreate the lightning in a bottle you caught with that big risk Indiana Jones movie or something, like that's also uh, contributing to the failure. And I then go back to the whole streaming service idea. Uh, I mentioned in our previous episode, I think uh, Thomas Simpson Jr. mentioned on his podcast, I think is a very worthy uh, theory or an interpretation uh, that some of the studio bosses actually support behind the scenes, the strikes, simply because it is the only way for them to start offloading projects. They have overbought because there's too much content for the streaming services specifically. There's too much perception that everything is going to be some prestige, uh, can't-be-missed TV show that's going to look and feel expensive, even if you're underpaying the writers and the actors. And so now they have an excuse uh, to start canceling stuff. Uh, There is an article in Variety on July the 28th. We'll have that in the show notes. It said that major Hollywood studios and streaming platforms are considering terminating some of their first-look and overall deals with writers as soon as August 1st. So by the time that you listen to the show, they may have already done that. That means they're going to start canceling stuff before they even make it because they were possibly overbuying stuff. They were constantly trying to top the other guy's streaming service because Netflix got way ahead of everybody else. And then suddenly Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and all the other pluses 
uh, want to beat them. And it's not going to happen. Uh, instead, uh, you get movies, whole movies being canceled. There's the Batgirl movie uh, that they canceled at uh, HBO Max, now stupidly called Max, by the way. Uh, I don't think it was going to be in any continuity going forward, but they just canceled it. And then suddenly everybody else started canceling stuff. Disney Plus has removed whole shows from the streaming service, uh, including that um, uh, Warwick Davis show. Uh, what's it called? Willow. Uh, Willow. Yeah, it was all woke <laughs> and stuff, but apparently it was also just not very well made. It's gone. Uh, you can't get on a disc that or anything. so wild. And now some because they're on strike and a lot of the writers and actors are posting and they're saying, yeah, this is what I got for that show. You know, I, I took, you know, three months out of my life to write that show and I only got the, you know, this measly check. And that does go back to what I said in our last episode, 172, about how to honor story creators. That is a great dishonor for their work. Uh, it is it is almost what the Apostle Paul says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Uh, you promised, if you promised uh, implicitly or in, on paper, that if you write this TV show and you know, you're going to get a bunch of money and opportunities of being rich and famous, and now you're not, that is unethical. Uh, we are now in a place as Christians and uh, entertainment consumers that we're getting these stories from unethical studios that we are underpaying. It's almost the same principle as like you know, paying three bucks for a nice t-shirt and try not to think about the overseas nation and the factory that made that t-shirt uh, where people can barely feed themselves just so you could get a nice but really cheap t-shirt. Uh, that's the problem there, I think. And it's something I think that we're going to have to reevaluate. Are we underpaying for these stories and expecting more from them anyway. Uh, in essence, then, are we trying to violate what I mentioned in the last episode, uh, trying to do little work while the other guy does too much work? By the sweat of his brow, he will get me that streaming show, uh, but I'm not going to even break a sweat. Uh, I think that actually becomes a moral issue in addition to a cultural one. Did you know that there was a, some AI scenes apparently in The Flash, including an actor that did not even appear in the credits? I probably know all of the dirt about the flash now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Henry Cavill wasn't in there. Just a gross PS2 likeness. Uh, the Christopher Reeve thing put a lot of people off. They did not like Christopher Reeve and Helen Slater as their original eighties characters. And then I think the worst thing actually was that uh, they recreated George Reeves who played the black and white Superman. The first version I saw, by the way, not because I was alive at the time, but because I was watching the reruns on Nick at night. And they're like, guys, the movie came out on the day that he died. And it was not a happy death, like less happy than usual, you know. Uh, and by the way, playing Superman ruined his career. So that's just a really tacky move. People are starting to treat these actors like humans. It's wonderful. It's good to see us thinking about how we treat actors and writers as representatives of God's image, uh, not just someone who's going to be enslaved to perform for me. I saw a, a clip on Twitter not too long ago. It was a, uh, actually, Zach, I'm about to break some ground here. I'm going to talk about country music on Fantastical oh, Truth. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. we've been talking about sports and, and you know, never, tried to never avoid politics. This. Never country music. It was a country music performer. I forget her name. I should have remembered for this anecdote. But she's in the middle of a concert. She's starting to sing her song. And she stops in the middle and says, hey, y'all down front. And it's these two uh, either young or teenage girls who are taking selfies. And they're right up front. Those are not the cheap seats, okay? And she says, hey, y'all. I'm here to sing country music. We're here to celebrate this music. I'd like you to put your phones away, please. And just participate, live in the moment. 
And apparently they do. And she says, okay, thank you. We'll get on with the song. And the audience is cheering right there. Uh, they're supporting her. The reason why I cite this, though, is because of the discourse afterwards. A whole lot of people were saying, hey, they paid to be there. They get to do what they want. How dare you call them out for it? I'm like, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry. I'm team country singer. She has a right to expect that level of respect. And if people aren't going to go along with that, then I think she does have a right to call them out or ignore them, whatever she wants to do. But it was this attitude of, I paid for it. You should do. You performers should do what I say. Exactly. It's not treating the celebrity as a human being and not treating yourself as a human being either. Um, Sure, maybe take a selfie. But if that's all you're doing, like that can be really distracting, I'm sure. Uh, But also just fails to respect the performer as a a person made in God's image. Yeah, I've heard of concerts where they have like a cell phone check-in station so that nothing, no phones are allowed. I think this is more with uh, some comedy acts I've followed. And that's not a bad idea. Um, of course, someone's always going to try to sneak a phone in or something like that. So it's not going to be bulletproof. But yeah, it is weird to see. Um, I, I occasionally run across these videos of these concerts. And it's like, oh, cool. I get to see this concert. And then I, but I get to see 10,000 other people holding, also holding their phones up. And uh, yeah, you, I, why go there just to film it? Like maybe, I don't, I don't know how they solve that. but. I think we just individually got to solve it. You're right. Well, I think that's another factor uh, before we move into the more positive uh, chapter of the show uh, as to why some films have become flop busters is there's not just too many streaming shows uh, and maybe even too many movies acting like blockbusters, but there's just too much always on entertainment all the time. And this is kind of an easy observation to make, but several actors I've seen interviewed about the strike have mentioned this. Uh, they were saying that why would you go to a movie and you know, pay $12 and then maybe even more for snacks, especially if you go there as a family experience. I mean, that could easily be over $100 uh, just for a movie. When you can wait for it to appear on the streaming service for which you're already underpaying, most likely, uh, or just turn on YouTube and get something free with ads, uh, turn on TikTok and get completely drawn into their algorithm. Uh, People's brains now, I think largely, are being trained to expect this sort of a short form entertainment and maybe aren't even practiced for the longer form movies. And that's something that is also contributing to the mess. And I think, especially if you are wanting to be uh, more dedicated toward reading or develop a higher attention span, you may need to just make sure that you're avoiding those kinds of apps. But apart from training to enjoy movies instead of just apps, I think this leads back to the original purpose of Lorehaven is practice reading books, practice reading short articles. If you feel that your attention span has gotten lower, uh, then practice reading longer books and even longer books. Uh, But it seems that even practicing watching longer movies in the theater without constantly checking your notifications takes a lot of effort for some folks. So I was glad that in our theater last night, it was a, little bit of an older population i saw nobody's phones out everybody was immersed in the story together very subdued crowd which you kind of get for a movie that's been out for a couple of weeks uh, but it seems that maybe at least around here some people are following that uh, that ethic and i appreciate it speaking of uh, novels and longer novels better novels maybe even over movies sponsor two for this episode is a returning champion ej kitchens with her i write how to write a novel course Looking for a fun yet challenging writing class for your teen or yourself? I write how to write a novel 
is a brand new online writing course that will teach you how to write a novels that your friends and even strangers will want to read, how to overcome writer's block and gather ideas, and much more. I Write is taught by EJ Kitchens, a professional copy editor, former college lab instructor, and award-nominated author of the Star Clock Chronicles and Magic Collector's books. I Write is 30 weeks long, and for any homeschoolers looking for a language arts credit, this course is worth one credit. For more information and to enroll before the August 15 start date, visit ejkitchens.com courses. Well, hopefully people who pursue that course and others will be writing better stuff than some of the flop busters we've seen. But now, Zach, uh, we get to end uh, what seems to have been a 35-minute long rant, a necessary one, though, and move to Chapter 2. Why have other movies done much better? I've already praised uh, MI7 as a good movie. I'm sure there are some other ones on the way. Uh, Zach and I have been looking forward uh, to The Creator, uh, which seems to be a remix of Rogue One mixed with a, a more futuristic uh, version of the Terminator story, uh, humans versus AI and a moral quandary in there with score by Hans Zimmer, which sounds on the surface amazing. I hope it's really good. Uh, it seems, Zach, that by contrast to movies that are either too much franchise or too many writers or just too much expectations loaded on them or different expectations by fans. Uh, films with strong unified storytelling voices are thriving. Uh, you mentioned seeing uh, the super Mario bros movie oh, cartoon, yeah. which became a billion plus dollar hit. Uh, what made that so successful, especially when all except for spider verse, maybe all the other animated movies this year are not doing very well. Uh, one word, fun. It, it was fun. <laughs> Imagine that a movie that's just fun. Uh, there were so many great moments in it that made me think of all the fun Mario video games. And I don't even know them all. My kids have played a lot of the newer ones like the super Mario Odyssey. And, and they know more about the you know newer levels of Mario Kart. You know, I grew up with the original Nintendo or super Nintendo Mario Kart. So of course I know some of that, uh, that lore, but there were so many just like Easter eggs to and, and just kind of love letters to fans of like, hey, you remember this funny moment in this game or, uh, you know, this uh, cool weapon you can get or just this fun little hidden track. Uh, it was just great. And then, you know, they had Jack Black playing Bowser, uh, singing these really ridiculous songs, uh, playing on the piano and uh, his kind of love ballads to Princess Peach. It was so over the top. I mean, it's so Jack Black. But, you know, overall, it followed the uh, first commandment of book marketing by Thomas Umstead. He's not the sponsor of the show, but he should be. Uh, Thomas often talks about love thy reader as thy book. You know, it, and that is what ultimately makes a book good or bad is whether the author is really thinking about the reader and loving them as much as their cool idea or the message that they have in it. Mario didn't really have any kind of message. Uh, there were some early grumblings from, uh, some pundits that said, oh, it's, it's feminism because princess Peach is having to show Mario what to do. Well, that's the natural arc of the story is that Peach has grown up in this world and Mario is the newcomer. And it's not that she has nothing to learn or that he's an idiot or th there's none of that kind of messaging. It's just, he's the new guy, but yeah, uh, spoiler, he does kind of save the day. I mean, that's the Mario game. The whole movie emulates what 
I would always feel playing these games. It's, it's, it's like an adventure, but it's sort of low stakes in a way. It's like, uh, you know, you're really trying to win, but you're also just trying to have fun. That's what Nintendo does so well. Um, that, that was my fandom growing up, by the way. I, I didn't grow up with a Sega Genesis, a PlayStation, an Xbox. Um, I grew up with Nintendo. And, and this very much felt like a Nintendo game. Have you seen Barbie or Oppenheimer? Gotta ask. Well, you said you've seen no movies this year, yep. but you waited to see Mario when it was on home release then? Yeah, well, I just waited for the uh, Blu-ray digital copy of yeah, Mario. Yeah, you and I, a lot of people doing that, yeah. I, I mean, mostly because I know that my kids are going to want to watch this over and over and over again, although, <laughs> um, sadly, my son uh, didn't like one part of the movie, and so I don't know that we'll watch it immediately after we watched it the first time. Uh but yes, it was it was so good that it demands a rewatch, and it's setting up a Nintendo Cinematic Universe. So because I, of course it is. Yeah. Yes. Now, but, did they plan this from the beginning, or did they say, "Whoa, this is tracking really uh, well"? I guess we better have a cinematic universe for this. Uh, well, so I I won't give it away, but there is a post credit scene that is setting that up, and I, I wondered if that was tacked on with the home release, but um some of my kids' friends that watched it with us, uh, they had seen it in the theater and they're like, oh, you got to wait for the end credit scene. I'm like, okay. And then I watched that. I'm like, okay. So they, they are definitely setting up a, a whole universe from this. And I think they're already in development for a Legend of Zelda uh, show. But, you know, w- with Mario, there's so many different adventures Mario goes on. I'm like, look, they could make a Dr. Mario movie and I would see it. Like <laughs> Mario teaches typing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing videos about some of those educational games, uh, which yeah. uh, my, I didn't have a Nintendo growing up, so it wasn't my wasn't my fandom. But okay. I can appreciate what I saw of it. Uh, my brother in law and his kids really enjoyed it, and they they had grown up with that. And a lot of the reasons that people gave for enjoying it is that well, it's not Disney. There's no agenda in there, right? You know, Princess Peach uh, doesn't have an Adam's apple. You know, there's none of that nonsense going on. So that's really uh, should be a really low bar to clear. You know, yeah. it's not trying to give your kids a toxic sexual ideology, but apparently it also just has a very singular creative voice. Like when I see clips of the characters, like I recognize them even as a casual. Oh, that's Mario. That's Luigi. That's Bowser. That's Princess Peach. That's the little toadstool guy. They're not radically redesigned. Uh, there was some uh, early criticism of Chris Pratt uh, doing the voice of Mario, but he does a very good job. Uh, did they have the, uh, I think I heard, I oh, heard they, they even had make the original. Fun of Oh, they re- yeah, make yeah, fun of it? How? How do they Yeah, do they, they even make fun of the voice at one point. So uh, Mario and Luigi are recording a video for like a commercial for their plumbing business. And then they got the, you know, Italian accent really thick. And then they're watching the video. They're like, oh, was that too much of an accent? And so, um, yeah, so they're, they're even making fun of that. And, you know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. So that's what was great. It, it doesn't... Um, now there's, you know, we've talked about movies that deconstruct themselves and like how She-Hulk did that, where, where she climbs out of the screen onto the, the Disney uh, app or whatever. And I wish I were making this up, but I've seen the clip for myself. Right. I've not seen the show. Don't cancel me. Don't cancel yeah. me. Conservatives have not seen the show. Okay. It, it, it's not that there's not like, Oh, Mario busts out of the TV and he, you know, he talks to the kid that's holding the controller, you know, sorry, there's, there's nothing like that. I don't know if anyone was hoping for that. I was really glad there was not that like it, it, um, how do I explain this? Like it, 
it takes itself seriously as a game, but it doesn't take itself so seriously that it it gets like dark or weird or, or something. It, it's it takes itself seriously as a fun game. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, and it's not just Mario, Luigi, Peach, Toad, Bowser. There's a lot of other characters that have been in other Nintendo games, and and they make like small appearance appearances. And so it's like, okay, are are they trying to set up a Donkey Kong movie or a Diddy Kong or you know these other kind of franchises? Well, that's fine because they weren't overdoing it, which, which is what I did not like about Age of Ultron. Going back to Marvel for a minute, that movie was entirely a commercial for other movies that it was going that Marvel was going to make. Yes, there was still the Ultron storyline, but there were so many weird side trails of like uh, the the TV shows and and other spinoffs that they were planning. With Mario, any spinoffs they're going to do, it felt very organic to the story. It it there was a point to every character in the movie, is what I'm trying to say. Interesting, you mentioned Age of Ultron because that's what I was thinking about, and and not just something as over the top deconstructive as She Hulk climbing out of her own Disney Plus menu. I was thinking of a lighter sort of deconstructive moment uh, in Age of Ultron where Hawkeye busts in to try to save someone who needs to get her act together and start using her superpowers. Uh, And he says, hey, hey, you know, I think you're going to be okay. Like, look, look at me. Like, we are fighting an army of robots and I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes any sense. (laughs) So, okay, when I recount it there, you laugh because it's kind of funny. It seems to be a deconstructive moment. None of this makes any sense. You know, isn't this ridiculous? We're in a superhero movie. Wink, wink, nod, nod. But the way that he plays it, it is something that I think only Hawkeye could have said because of his style, because of his uh, kind of a smart aleck sense of humor. Uh, It works on two levels. You can interpret that as none of this makes any sense as just, wow, we're in a really absurd situation here uh, and my skills seem mismatched, but I'm going to make it work and you're going to become a hero too with your skills. It works on that level, but then some critic could come away saying, oh, you know, this is a, this is a nod by the, uh, by the writer, the script that we know we're in a ridiculous story. And I appreciate the call out because that makes me feel good as a very smart critic being made to sit through this uh, instead of some artsy movie. So, you know, three and a half stars. Uh, I think that some of those lines are designed to be uh, working on both levels. But something like the She-Hulk moment or, you know, something that just is over the top deconstructive. Wow, like who put that there or some bad writing, you know, it just constantly lampshading. I hate knocking against all those lampshades while I'm just trying to have a good time. And it sounds like Super Mario Bros. didn't put lampshades everywhere. So I, I appreciate that. It was a sincere sincere movie. That's the word. I use words like sincere and earnest rather than serious because you can have a sincere and earnest story that still has some what people call jokes. And I don't mean jokes like let's grind the story to a halt, even though there's a pile of dead bodies over there and let's joke about the smell. No, don't do that. It's sad that people died. Let's be earnest about it. Then wait until a scene or two later when we need a little breathing room and a little uh, balanced palate and have a humorous moment. Even better if it's a character-based humorous moment and not just some dumb quip that any of the dumb quippy characters could have said. Uh, that's uh, in a good way. That's how Mission Impossible worked. They didn't have dumb quips. You know, they, they made a little uh, in-joke about the initials IMF and they had some character-based humor here or there. Like, you know, when the facial scan software isn't working or Tom Cruise is like, wait a minute, like, you want me to jump from that to there? 
and you just see this fear and this like this is ludicrous uh, sense in his eyes and suddenly all the audience is on his side and they're laughing not at him but with him they're laughing with the movie not at the movie i think movies like that do much better and i think uh that that's why for example barbie's doing really well regardless of what one's take may be on it again i haven't seen it but it seems that people are laughing with the movie not at the movie and even some uh, cultural conservative bro types are laughing with ken not at ken uh it seems to me that ken portrayed by ryan gosling has stolen the show that's what it sounds like which yeah. is kind of fun to see like uh, yeah and it's starting to get to me like i've seen all the uh the punditry and the critiques that it's some terrible feminist screed maybe it is a terrible feminist screed but it seems to me like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, uh, which actually is kind of the uh, the roast of the pitch meeting for Barbenheimer, which is spectacular, by the way. Go watch the pitch meeting for Barbenheimer. He does a pitch meeting for both at the same time. Uh, there's actually three Ryan Georges on screen. A little spoiler alert there. But if people are laughing with the movie, that means I'm invested in the movie. I'm not just there to get distracted because there was nothing else on my phone at the time. Uh, I'm I'm there for a reason. Uh, and there to meet people, to meet characters, uh, not just be sold a product. And yet they do want to sell you a product. Uh, Zach, you mentioned earlier the whole uh, cinematic universe thing. Everything's got to get one. I shared uh, among the Lorehaven team a few days ago a, uh, a, a graphic that someone had done, just a mock-up. It said phase one, and it's kind of the infamous MCO-style timeline with all of these new very professional looking logos in there and it says mattel studios <laughs> with the marvel studios font i think you saw that barbie july 21st 2023 polly pocket november 17 2023 oh, ken origins may 24th 2024 the pink night december 20th 2024 and there's dates for all of these the pink night rises magic eight outlook not so good rock a stack with those little uh, you know preschool toys that you're supposed to put on <laughs> And then Uno and then, oh and then Hot Wheels. Okay, so I posted this. I thought, I thought it was a joke. And then on July 26th, here's Variety again. Mattel execs on Next Hollywood Moves, Barney, Polly Pocket, and Barbie sequels. I don't know whether it's a joke or not now. I don't know how you could turn this into a cinematic universe. What have Hot Wheels to do with Barbie? But apparently J.J. Abrams is going to have a Hot Wheels I guess it's the mystery box where you don't know what color the Hot Wheels is going to be. And then everything's going to get probably ruined uh, by the sort of corporate approach. And then you lose, potentially, you lose that unique creative storytelling voice that I mentioned earlier that people seem to be resonating with. Uh, whether it's something that is a little bit more corporate, but also personal and earnest like Super Mario Bros. Or something like the Barbie movie, which has two credited writers, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. Maybe they did a terrible job and they're terrible feminists or whatever, but hey, at least it's their voice, just two people who wrote the script for the movie, which will increase the chances that it's going to be sincere and earnest, even as a satire, uh, and not feeling so corporate. Uh, with Mission Impossible 7, you get Christopher McQuarrie, uh, who, who writes the movie. And, and then another Chris, of course, Christopher Nolan, uh, is the sole credited writer for Oppenheimer. So these feel like very personal projects and i think they maybe give that sense uh that this is in a sense homemade and not so corporate it's the corporate stuff that I people i think people don't like and by the way i think that um actually hedges uh, against failure 
for a superhero movie, if you've got a superhero movie that is more associated with a certain writer or director and it doesn't do well, the corporation escapes unscathed. But if it's the Marvel Corporation uh, under Disney and you're making a superhero movie with, you know, 11 teen credited writers, and maybe two or three directors you plucked off a streaming service somewhere, they're not associated with that brand. The corporation is. And so if the movie's terrible, people say, wow, Marvel movies are really terrible. Too much CGI. Uh, I can't get invested in this. Too many jokes. Too much bright colors and a mess on the screen. And now the corporation suffers. The whole brand suffers instead of the writer director. Uh, it's fascinating to see uh, this stuff going on. And from a creative writing perspective, I think it's great to see more respect, do you think, for specific writers and directors? Like, Say what you will about Greta Gerwig uh, for reasons that seem good to the universe. Uh, apparently granted two Narnia movies on Netflix. Not sure how that's going to work, but our Lorehaven fans, when I posted an Instagram meme, were not very fond of that idea. Nonetheless, I think it's healthy to see respect for a writer-director, a single person who has proven herself or himself and has gotten that far uh, and who can do not only the directing, but also the writing or, or is the only writer of the movie and the movie turns out great. And then you can look at it and go, wow, X wrote that movie. X must be really talented. I think X should get an award. I think we should honor and respect X, the writer or X, the director. I find that a very good habit uh, that reflects uh, on, on our last show 172 about honoring and respecting the story creator. I think once the corporation decreases a little bit, you're able to let the successful writer or director come to the foreground. You know that person is, that person gets some more recognition. Uh, and then now you are following the stories made by a person, not just a giant corporate machine. It's more human than it has been. Yeah. So whether I see Barbie or not, whether I like it or don't like it or what, however that shakes out for everyone, I do respect that Mattel or whoever owns the, uh, the IP for the movie they chose a individual to write and produce that. I, I think that's great. It's, it's back to what we were saying earlier. Take a risk. Don't be so risk averse that it's designed by committee. Hand it over to someone and, and let them run with it. Yeah, so maybe we'll see the Mattel Cinematic Universe. But Steven, there's already a Hasbro uh, Cinematic Universe in the making. I mean, we've had Clue, you know, the 1980s movie with um, Tim Curry in it. We've had Battleship, the movie that came out a few years ago, which was actually really good. It, it was a really fun naval alien invasion movie. Surprise me. Now, will we get uh, Pictionary or Scrabble or Monopoly or <laughs> Candy? Monopoly would be an anti-capitalistic subversive yeah. oh, message-based oh, sure movie. You just know it would be. Yeah. Uh, hungry, Hungry Hippos. I mean, th there's... I, I Starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson <laughs> in the jungle. Yeah. So, you know, we did. Uh, so interestingly, on the Wikipedia page, it says that they own Dungeons and Dragons, which I thought that was Wizards of the Coast. That's who owns it. But I, I, don't, I don't know if Hasbro still has some ownership there. But I mean, that that movie came out. A lot of people have said it's great. Oh, Dungeons and Dragons is pretty good. Yes. But recently, the Paramount Plus or actually just the Paramount CEO said, Hey, we'd like to make a sequel to that, but technically the movie underperformed, so we'd have to make a less expensive sequel. It, it is a good movie, though. It's a heist movie in a fantasy kingdom. Uh, it is earnest. It's also goofy, but you really come alongside the characters. And there's no incidences that I can recall of the message. No sexual revolution stuff. Uh, female characters are respected. Male characters are respected. 
they actually visually in one fight scene, I'm pretty sure this is intentional, Zach. They intentionally subverted the whole big female action hero does everything while the male action hero just does nothing but try to break free. Uh, they specifically subverted that because then like he breaks free and then is just as effective at taking out the bad guys. Well, if you're trying to learn how to discern popular entertainment, uh, I think you can do no better uh, than our third sponsor for this episode, The Pop Culture Parent. That's the nonfiction book uh, written by uh, Ted Journeau and Dr. Jared Moore and myself, released a few years ago, but still going strong. It is a guidebook, a simple one, to help parents, guardians, pastors, youth leaders, whomever, uh, study the purpose of popular culture in God's world. We don't just assume we know what these stories are for uh, to edify or entertain us. Uh, they are for the glorification of God by reflecting his image in human beings. Unfortunately, of course, uh, after God gave human beings that whole idea, uh, sin entered the world. And now sin lingers in your children's hearts and is also available in the form of many stories as idols. So it's not just the bad stuff, the bad words, uh, the cussing and fighting that you're looking for in these stories as you try to train your children to discern and engage them. Uh, it is idols that will tug at the sinful impulses in your children's hearts and maybe even your own. Uh, we have five questions and three case studies uh, to help you explore these stories for the glory of God and the good of your children. Look for The Pop Culture Parent, a uh, simple and yet awesomely covered book uh, from New Growth Press. Uh, it is available at newgrowthpress.com or, of course, uh, see the link in our show notes. All right, Zach, uh, let's get out the, uh, the thing we're not supposed to do because it's a Christian podcast, Crystal Ball, and ask the question of chapter three, what is the future of summer blockbusters? Uh, in addition to new cinematic universes for all of us to enjoy or perhaps dread uh, because now maybe it's going to feel more like homework uh, than entertainment. Like we promote in the pop culture parents, fans are getting more discerning about their choices. Uh, maybe they want to commit to a franchise, maybe not. But I think that maybe we once thought uh, that the small movies would fail and the franchises would thrive. Now that no longer appears to be true. Uh, you mentioned earlier the Sound of Freedom movie. Kind of came out of nowhere, but it had been in limbo for a long time. And that's not an easy sell. But it's built off of the brand equity of Angel Studios, uh, the distributor of, of this little movie, based on a true story, but with some controversial uh, added perspectives, apparently, about a guy who's fighting uh, the sex trafficking. And I think it's going to clear $100 million, and there was at least a few days where it was beating uh, the Indiana Jones movie. I think it beat the Indiana Jones movie on July the 4th. People perceived quality in that movie, whereas for whatever reason, people were not perceiving quality uh, in the Anna, Indiana Jones movie. So I think people are getting more discriminating. Uh, they're not just committing to a franchise by a corporation. They want quality stories, whether or not it's a franchise, whether or not it's a legacy sequel like Top Gun Maverick last year uh, or Avatar The Way of Water. People want good stuff. If I'm going to pay 20 bucks for a movie theater ticket on opening night and wait in line and all that. Uh, I want it to be good. The cheap stuff I can get on my streaming service at home. I don't mind waiting a few months. I think a lot of people are thinking about that. So my prediction is that I think it's going to be the smaller startup franchises like those from Angel Studios, including a lot of Christian creators, by the way, uh, that are, that are going to reach more viewers. They at least have a lot more of a fighting chance uh, rather than being dwarfed by these uh, big franchises like Marvel or even the new stuff being planned like uh, the Barbie Land franchise. 
You might want to hope then that some of these independent productions could rise to the top because as of the other day, once again, apparently I'm hanging out a lot at Variety. There is another headline, Beyond the Spider-Verse taken off Sony release calendar as strikes delay Craven the Hunter and Ghostbusters sequel to 2024. So now it's not just the late night talk shows uh, that have uh, stopped production. Uh, They're now delaying these cinematic releases, which is a huge disappointment to me, Zach, and probably to you because we're looking forward to Dune Part 2 in November. I'll make an exception to my Warner Brothers uh, distaste to see Dune Part 2, but I'm guessing that will also get delayed because Sony went first. Somebody, one of those studios had to go first, and now probably the rest of them will also go. So guys, any of those release dates you had in mind for the uh, movie trailers you've seen or all all the posters I saw at the theater yesterday, they are all null and void. It's going to be pandemic lockdowns all over again. And on the one level, I think that's very disappointing. uh, And we don't even know how long that'll last because they would say it's related to the strikes. On the other hand, this feels great because it does open territory for other kinds of stories, older stories, books podcasts, audio drama, video games, not just movies and streaming shows. I look, by the way, for many of these streaming services, and this is kind of an obvious prediction to make, but I think that a lot of them have already started severely downscaling. I think the bubble is collapsing. I think they haven't had the numbers for a long time, but they didn't want to admit it because then the other guy uh, wouldn't have admitted it, and he looks better, and they've all been trying to compete with one another. I think you'll see some of these services merge or even collapse. There's already been a few ones uh, that have collapsed. I'm guessing we'll see a few others fold. They're already starting. Uh, WBD started when they canceled Bad Girls, I mentioned, and then all of a sudden Disney's pulling stuff. Uh, Paramount Plus pulled an entire animated Star Trek show, Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, now it's looking for a home for the second season, which is already being finished. It's the craziest thing. It's a good series. I watched it, even though it's for kids. Uh, it kind of works on the level of Avatar The Last Airbender, where it, it it's suitable for kids, but also has some good themes in there for grownups and yet not adult themes. You know, it deserves a home. I've, I've joined another hashtag movement. If you can't imagine another thing, Zach, uh, is that I think people will be doing more physical media. I kind of saw this and you definitely saw this a while ago, right? Where like, I don't want to just have eBooks. They could change them. They could remove them from your uh, Kindle device, whatever. I want the physical copy so it won't get revised. But now get physical copies of your TV shows and movies if you can, because they could just vanish off the streaming server and never, ever come back. What do you expect for for the future of this stuff, Zach? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely back in the the physical medium. I mean, Stephen, I've gone full circle on this. I I used to love collecting CDs and I had a whole like tower rack, like four sided thing of, of CDs. And then I moved to like the binders and then. And then I got into, uh, well, I guess I skipped mini discs and went straight to iPod and then uh, Palm Pilot ebooks and then Kindle ebooks. I loved having a Kindle. I mean, I've got hundreds of Kindle books because they're often so very cheap. Um, well, they used to be. And then until there was a uh, price fixing lawsuit uh, thing that happened. And now the prices are much higher <laughs> for Kindle books. Uh, currently, my Kindle e reader is not working so great. I need to, and it's past the warranty. So I've got a, you know, send it in and or or, or uh, sell it back to Amazon and and buy a different one. I guess. Yeah, I I love owning the uh, Blu-ray, DVD, digital combo. So I've got a couple of different options. I wish books had done that. I wish you could get a physical digital audiobook combo from Amazon or Apple or whoever. I don't care who does it. I just 
really wish that would be a thing. I am really looking forward to a particular original movie. As far as I can tell, this is a totally original story coming out in September, Stephen. It's called The Creator. Oh, yeah. I mentioned that a moment ago. I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, starring John David Washington, who I was today years old when I realized I was Denzel Washington's son. <laughs> oh, and uh, now I'm this very second years old. That's yeah. <laughs> very cool. Okay. Well, he's the protagonist, but now he gets a right. name. Right. Yeah, I loved him in Tenet. I thought he was great. I mean, yes, he should have had a name there. I still have that grievance with that. But uh, so here's the storyline. Amid a future war between the human race and the forces of artificial intelligence. There it is again. Joshua, a hardened ex-special force, ex-special forces agent, grieving the disappearance of his wife, is recruited to hunt down and kill the creator, the elusive architect of advanced AI, who has developed a mysterious weapon with the power to end the war and mankind itself. So, wow. When I saw this trailer, it just came out of nowhere. I had not heard a single thing about this. And just the trailer with the soundtrack in it, Oh my gosh. By the end of it, I was like, shut up and take my money. And I went to the YouTube comments and everyone was saying that they're like, finally an original movie with just a new storyline, but more importantly, a moral conflict. We, oh, we talked about this so in chapter in one the trailer. Yeah. 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 And in the trailer, you see the moral conflict. I'm here to kill this AI system. Oh, wait a second. It's a child you know, that, that's got this weird cranium circle thing, um, and is just an innocent kid, but that's who's in charge of the AI system. So now I got, I, I can't kill a kid and, um, you know, and, and there's uh talk about heaven and hell and the afterlife and just some interesting kind of philosophy happening. So man, th- this movie, like I have very high hopes for this. I hope I'm not disappointed, but it just looks like a great story. It, it looks like a really good conflict that's going on both externally, internally. Um, and again, it, it's back to that. Uh, we're, we're just going to go out and take a risk. Now, the, the director is uh, Gareth Edwards, who directed Rogue One, which we've already talked about, which was another great film because of, again, those storytelling risks that it took. And just that focus on making a really entertaining story. So, hey, this gives me hope. Now, yes, with the writer's strike and the actor's strike, it might be a while before we see something like this. But, you know, who knows what could happen in a few years? Like, I I hope movies like this, I hate to say this, but really send a message back to Hollywood of like, this is what fans want to see. We want to see new things. And of course, this is a very timely topic with AI, right? let's, Let's just acknowledge that. Uh, but you know, that's what I loved about inception and other Christopher Nolan movies. I'm like, I've never heard of this idea before. Like, this is a really cool idea. Yeah. So let's hope that does well. And also Dune part two, also a very good, uh, moral conflict going on. Paul is trying to, you know, rebel basically against this uh, evil emperor, but then is he going to become evil by all of the power he's getting at a very young age? It's like, that verse in scripture that says, you know, don't appoint a new believer to a position of leadership. I have a feeling that's kind of what's going to happen in uh, Dune Part 2. Now, I've read all of Dune, and I'm familiar with Dune Messiah. I haven't read it yet, so I kind of know a little bit about what's going to happen. But those kind of conflicts are what make uh, these stories so good. 
So uh, unless any of these get delayed, either because the strikes or studio agreed or both and, uh, we're looking at a possible science fiction uh, unique voice, brand new franchise or brand new universe, uh, triple threat uh, throughout the last half of this year. And it's a great way to, I think, illustrate what we mentioned in our last chapter is that these kinds of movies, whether they're high concept sci-fi or not, are doing better uh, because although they have the budget of a big corporation, uh, they also have the benefit of a unique creative voice uh, from the writing to the directing. You already mentioned Dune Part 2. I really hope that doesn't get delayed, but it probably will from, here goes the mispronunciation, Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> There it is. Yeah, that's totally him. You can tell I'm a huge fan, Uh, but you can, uh, I I really am uh, because he did great. Now I haven't seen the Blade Runner stuff, uh, but of course I did see Arrival. Arrival was really great, really unique. Uh, Had that singular creative vision from a writer slash director. Just looked up the creator here. Of course, it's directed by Gareth Edwards. Uh, He's even got the same um, orbital platform uh, from Rogue One. Uh, It's back and now it's on Earth instead of the galaxy far, far away. Uh, He's also the screenplay writer. Uh, along with a writer named Chris Weitz, uh, with whom he worked uh, with uh, on Rogue One. Uh, Chris Weitz, I already have a positive association with him, because although he apparently did some Twilight movies, he also did the Disney live-action Cinderella, which is fabulous, and which is just the epitome of earnestness. It, it's so earnest, it is almost Narnian. I think it's the best Disney live-action adaptation. So when I find a movie whose writing, I can tell, is very good, in addition to good production value and an earnest uh, exploration of moral themes, I look up the writer because I want to, even for myself, honor and respect that person and then look out for what they're going to do next. So that's why I'm looking up the writers for the creator. I don't know whether I'll like it or not, but I suspect I will for the reasons you've described. Oh, look, uh, Ken Watanabe is also in it. So there's some actors I recognize as well. And he's a robot. Oh, he's going to be a robot this time. Okay, okay. All right, so so let let him fight. Let him fight this time. Yeah. <laughs> so we got the creator. We got Doom Part Two, and then of course there's Rogue One uh, from Zack Snyder, uh, whom you may know from my previous mentions on the show. Uh, certainly a chap uh, who has his own unique creative voice, uh, but is uh, the primary or is the director of that, and so it's going to be all his style. Uh, and yet also I hope um, you know held back in a good way because I I don't want an R-rated you know, naked people, blood and guts, you know, zombie movie from Zack Snyder. I really don't care about that stuff. Uh, I do want more of a PG-13 movie that's going to be more accessible. So they decided they're going to make both. (laughs) It's going to be, of course, an R-rated extended version of Rogue One, which is basically uh, Seven Samurai in space. But there will also be a PG-13 more accessible version. Uh, I think it's going to be a limited theatrical release for that, but it is a Netflix movie. So it's going to be primarily streaming. Three science fiction movies, each with its own uh, very singular visioned director uh, and with very few writers on those. I want to see more of those, not just because they're sci-fi, but because those are the kind of stories that I think are going to strike audiences as being something fresh and new and exciting. And even if they lead to some big franchise, they're not leading with that. I remember the whole MonsterVerse attempt a few years ago, Zach, with... um, we're going to have uh, we're going to have the dark universe and we're going to bring back all the monsters. We're going to start with the mummy. Uh, and, and I think uh, that just didn't work because they announced it was going to be a franchise right out of the gate. And then instead of people going, yay, a franchise, we haven't right. had one of those in a long time. People went, oh, blimey, another franchise. Eat and your vegetables. If, yeah, eat your ve- Exactly. Like <laughs> cramming your peas down your face <laughs> instead of. Uh, of candy but even too much candy all at once people will find revolting you've got to get people used to the idea you've got to 
generate the perception and actual success before you do that stuff. So uh, wait until the movie actually takes off and people develop goodwill toward it and the singular vision of the creator and or writers before you announce a giant franchise uh, and honor what's come before rather than try to subvert it uh, with the bitter old man trope and the young upstart female or male replacement trope. Uh, don't put your woke messaging in there. Don't step on the sincerity with a bunch of dumb quips and interchangeable jokes uh, that lower the stakes. Even if you claim the stakes are high, if people in the movie are behaving like they aren't, then they aren't. Uh, and there's lots of other things that I think uh, will help the future of summer blockbusters or movies in general. But I think it's going to be a while before we see those. And in the meantime, Zach, I don't know how you're feeling about all this, but I'm just kind of enjoying the drama. I don't want people to go without work. I don't want the key grips and the best boys and all the crew on these movies to have to you know, go back to delivering Uber Eats. But apparently they're going to have to do that because of either this tectonic shift in the industry or the studio greed or both. Uh, it's a rough life out there. And I think, by the way, some Christians who say, well, big Hollywood is so rich and powerful and famous. You know, there's some terrible singular Borg collective out there. I think we need to respect the humanity of these folks, as I mentioned in the last show. Um, even the people who get their names in the credits of a streaming drama, like they may be, especially where they live, very poor and struggling. And they may not even have families and they may barely be able to support themselves. Uh, it is a rough life. I would not wish that on anybody. I think that's why we're going to see a lot of people with that experience wash out and go to a uh, independent production. I heard that, uh, what was the studio? A24. I think they do horror movies. I think they get to keep on doing their stuff uh, because they're not a giant studio. They agree to the the, the writers and uh, actors conditions. I'd have to look that up. But The Chosen uh, got an exception uh, for filming, which is great because they're apparently um, uh, just wrapped uh, filming for season four and they were going to have to stall on that when they were so close to finishing. And then there's other productions that keep going overseas or just smaller companies. So I would also look for in yeah the independent stuff to do much better. Yeah, Stephen, I I I'm sorry, but I'm I'm glad that Hollywood's kind of shut down right now. So that I mean, I'm not saying I'm studios, not glad. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I I do feel bad for the individual people that are just trying to get it. You know, just trying to go to work somewhere. I I definitely sympathize with that, but I am really not upset at the big studios that aren't able to push out their propaganda right now and subvert all the stories we've loved. And I'm just glad to see independent studios putting out original content. That's just fun. And it's just entertaining and good storytelling. Um, it, it's a classic David versus Goliath moment in, in my opinion. So I, you know, it's like that, <laughs> the, the Gene Wilder, uh Willy Wonka meme where he's like stop don't don't go don't leave <laughs> that's kind of how I feel it's like hey just just keep it going guys as far as I care um yeah as much as I would love to see the Hasbro cinematic universe uh I'm okay if we don't <laughs> for a well, while aren't you missing the late night comedians though Zach <laughs> oh, we, need, we need to have people absolutely refusing uh to roast Jimmy certain politicians. Letterman Carson yeah, the two Jimmy no Car Carson's been away for a long Don, time so, so is Letterman actually Don. so obviously proves that you're a huge fan of the uh, the late night hijinks <laughs> yeah uh, I was reading another article the other day apparently I read a lot of articles for this I sort of naturally prepared for this show 
uh, that said that late night TV may not survive this. Oh, I, I, I think it's stop, been don't limping go. along. <laughs> it's been limping <laughs> along for a while. Man, we're talking about country music and now just plain old comedy on here. That's not very fantastical. But yeah, if it gets wiped out, well, there's there's lots of different types of TV shows that have gone away, folks. You know, that's just part of it. And I think it's another application here is that all those things that people think are inevitable in entertainment really are not really are not twitter will be around forever nope it just changed its name to a dumber name late night tv will be around forever uh doesn't look like it uh, a lot of people are uh, jumping that particular ship on fire marvel studios superhero movies they will be around forever yeah that's what people used to say about westerns and big screen musicals and now those are very rare uh, because people just got so tired of them the market got oversaturated and now they're just kind of a specialty media uh, anything that people say is inevitable is never inevitable. These culture watchers are trying to forecast trends based on what's already happened. Uh, these people are trying to keep track of where the money goes and anticipating the audience taste will just stay the same. Uh, there's actually kind of a warning about that in scripture. I think it's in first Peter three uh, that people will come along and say, uh, yeah, this whole Jesus coming back thing, I, I don't know what that's about. That's ridiculous. All things will always continue as they always have. Many an emperor of an uh, ancient empire has made the same boast. And where are they now? Some of them are footnotes in your history textbook. I think it's the same thing with all this entertainment stuff. I think that stories and songs, even specific movies and books, will last forever. At least the idea of them, if not particular ones. Because they're part of being human. I don't throw them all out. Uh, they're not inhuman. Uh, they're not automatically sinful. Uh, but some of them will not. In the eternal perspective of things, uh, a lot of the big hyped projects that people got excited about uh, that either earned a lot of money or failed to earn a lot of money are going to be absolutely forgotten. The work will be erased. Uh, it'll just be retconned out of history and people will feel a little embarrassed even to talk about it. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of Christian-made stuff, as done unto the Lord, uh, will not be. So that's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this stuff as a side project. Uh, and then next week, we'll get back to the, <laughs> to the Christian-made stuff uh, after the side quest into the popular culture stuff. So thank the Lord that books, I think, will stick around. And certainly uh, the Christian authors whom we know and whose work we are tracking have not gone on strike. There's a really a no need for it. And that's why we're going to continue reviewing these books and featuring the authors at Lorehaven. Let's go for a quick mission update. Reviews are back at the site. And we have our new review of a book called Sky of Seven Colors. Oh, wait, you heard about that one. It was the top sponsor of this show. That review is now available at lorehaven.com. Our next review coming out the Friday after release date is called Vincent in Wonderland by C.E. White. It's a bit of an older title that one of our reviewers took a shine to. So you can find that very interesting premise there. And then as of this week, we have begun our next book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. That is for the fantasy uh, Peter Pan retelling slash sequel Dust by Kara Swanson. How do you join the Lorehaven Guild uh, to fly off to Neverland? You can subscribe free and get updates to the site at lorehaven.com. It is free and you will get your exclusive invitation code to join the Lorehaven Guild, uh, which is on Discord. And uh, now more than 250 heroes there exploring fantastical stories for God's glory. 
And if you subscribe, uh, you can also get notifications if you choose whenever we release a new podcast episode or article or review uh, or news update. Well, over in the comm station, we had a message from Paul who wrote to us in the Lorehaven Guild, our exclusive Discord server. And he commented on our last episode, 172, which was a Steven Solo show. Why should Christian fans honor and support story creators? And Paul had this to say, quote, I'm glad I listened last night. You maintain a hopeful and delicate balance between unhealthy excesses of optimism and pessimism. I mean, in one's personal feeling about the results of hard work and passion when not the winner, end quote. Thanks for listening, Paul. Thanks for writing us. And to you, our listener, you can always send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Just get out your email app. No need to load up anything else. But you can also comment on this episode page on lorehaven.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or X, the new word for twitter.com. I am never going to call it that. I'm never going to call a tweet an X or use X as a verb. That's just weird. It's just so, weird. It's also sus. I have this now big, big black X on the app, which updated on my Android phone. It does not look a lo- like a legitimate safer work or safer marriage or safer yeah. godliness app now. It Unless looks like X a sus marks app. the spot for or the a X treasure men, map. Uh, Lex yeah. Corp. Yeah, it, it's mm. no. I, I I like Space X. It sounds cool, but anyway, well, this isn't even about that. But yeah, <laughs> we've got feelings, folks. We've got feelings. And next on Fantastical Truth, speaking of feelings. Great stories give us a lot of feelings and they make us feel wonder. We feel grief. We feel joy or love. We often feel temptations to sin. Yet some of the greatest stories also help us not just to feel, but to think, to ask big questions about God, ourselves, and our world. These stories can help us practice even deeper thinking about the deep stuff. And we call this philosophy. So in our next episode, Phil Lawler, Philosophy Lawler, we might call him. He's the Adventures and Odyssey founding father and writer of hundreds of their episodes. He will rejoin our podcast for the first time since episode 100, and he will help us explore how Christian stories train us in renewing our minds for the glory of God. Meanwhile, if you like movies, I hope we didn't roast too many of your favorites here but you may want to get used to waiting on some of those as the dominoes start to fall and the industry starts reorganizing itself. I think it may be helpful to remember that God is sovereign. All this other stuff is in flux. They cannot predestine their own futures, but God can. And if he cares about the hairs on your head and the little sparrow's fate, then I think he also cares about the fate of Hollywood writers and actors and these stories. It's helpful to know that he is the great scriptwriter and actor, and he will never go on strike. And let's remember that as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.